Good morning, everybody. Hey. So good. Like most of you are smiling. Maybe it's because you feel awkward with me smiling back at you right now. We are all good. James, you good? Yeah, you good. Mark, you're all right. It's good, man. You guys are all. Oh, someone's speaking my language. Uh, We're going to pray. Is that good? Yeah? All right. Can I get five or six people willing to pray for me and for us right now? Awesome. Awesome. Bless them, Lord. The rest of you just receive. It's good. Let's pray. Hmm. Just during worship, I uh, had a strong sense from the Lord that there are several of you here that are feeling like um, too much time has been lost or you're not able to do what you want to do or used to be able to do or you desire to do, and some of you are even feeling like a sense of, of guilt or condemnation that you're not doing more here at church um, or for the kingdom of God. And, and I just, some of you, I, I just really feel like God has given you uh, an anointing like Anna in the New Testament who spent her life in the presence of God and praying, and praying for a nation, and praying for others. Some of you, that's where you're at. You're feeling like, all I can do right now is pray. I want to say to you, thank you so much. Thank you so much. on behalf of leaders here, on behalf of this church, and on behalf of Jesus, thank you. Thank you for fighting for the breakthrough of others. This side of heaven, you may not ever know fully what your prayers have done. But the Lord sees and the Lord knows. And he says, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Time spent in his presence and in prayer is never unfruitful. Lord, I ask that you would increase in Anna anointing on this people and on this congregation, Lord. And would you encourage those who pray? Some of you are even feeling like, yeah, but I don't pray for hours like some do. (laughs) Can I tell you, it's usually not about length. It's about heart and faith. I just want to thank you. Keep it going. We need it now more than ever. Yeah, for his glory. Jesus, we ask right now in your name that you help us to turn to you. And Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to you right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you know that we've been in a a series called The Beautiful Exchange. The Beautiful Exchange, moving into wholeness. And this this series has been really kind of from the foundation point of Isaiah 61, which Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of his message, which is part of a an overall theme of this year, which is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And we see Isaiah 61 as Jesus proclaims, as his manifesto, as his vision statement, as his heart's desire and his desire for ministry. And we look at these statements as this exchange of what uh, what we have and what we deal with and what our is a reality in our fallen world into what God wants to give us in his heart and in his perfect will and in his kingdom. And so we've been going through this and today we're, we're going to continue this series and today we're going to talk about moving from greed into generosity. Moving from greed into generosity. I want you to raise your hand if, if uh, for those of you, how many of you are greedy in this place? This is good. Some honest people. Nobody wants to say that they're greedy, right? One of my favorite stories. It's a classic, and there's a reason it's a classic, because most of us love the story. How many of you love Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Right? Me too. I love it. I watch it every Christmas. I watch every version that there is. I love it. I've read it before. And, and there's a reason why, because as Charles Dickens writes this, this, this tale of the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, it's not only a, a cultural commentary that Dickens was writing for his time, it's this caricature of the human heart, something that we all struggle with. It's this character. And most of us look at Ebenezer Scrooge, and none of us are like, yeah, he's my idol. Love that guy. My heart's so reflected by him. No, none of us do that. And, and Dickens knows that. He knows it's a caricature. But all of us love that story because there's a great turnaround in the end, right? You see this evolution take place where, where you see Ebenezer, the beginning of the story, as he's just filled with just all, you just, unbelievable greed and anger and bitterness and self-protection. And he's treating his fellow man like horribly. And then Dickens goes back through the story of the three ghosts who speak, uh, no, visit him on Christmas Eve. And you find out more about the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, don't you? You find out that his dad rejected him, that he grew up alone, that he was separated from his family, and that the, that's where a place of bitterness grew in. And, and then he, you know, he fell in love. And then that broke down because while he was falling in love with a woman, he was also falling in love with money, with security, and with greed. And we see that that continued to just release more bitterness and greed in his life. And you you see this, and as you progress through this, you start to feel some empathy towards him, don't you? And then there's this great exchange this great encounter, this great eye-opening revelation, enlightenment, epiphany that takes place in his heart. And then he's forever changed. Dickens ends the story telling that this change was permanent and that he became the most generous person. He became, he wasn't a miser anymore. Now he was a generous father fighting for the needs of, of the oppressed and the poor and the most needy among us. We all love that story, don't we? That story is just a beautiful tale of someone who went from greed to generosity. Well, we may not identify with Scrooge, but the reality is, is if we're, most of us were honest, we'd rather say we're like, we want to be like the Scrooge at the end of the story. And we're not there yet. There's something in the human heart that knows that's the best way to live, that knows that that's really abundant living coming from generosity. But this character is also descriptive of places in our heart that we know that we hide it really well, but there's places of greed within us. So I want to look today at at two things. We're going to look at this a story in Scripture that I think is its own Christmas carol. It's an own story of Ebenezer coming to an epiphany moment and go moving from greed into generosity. And there's some principles that we can learn behind this. And then I'm going to share some things that I've shared parts of this before uh, here that I got um, in working through this something uh, with a friend of ours. Actually, Wes and I met, uh, you know, um, at a conference 
years ago out in California that was hosted by uh, Mosaic Church in Irwin McManus. Well, Irwin shared some of this stuff with me in a young adult setting uh, years ago, and it's really touched my life, and I just want to share that, so I want to give him credit for some of the things I'm going to be sharing today along that way. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19, a very familiar story of this beautiful exchange of someone who very quickly moves from greed into generosity. It's a very familiar story, but let's look at it together. Luke chapter 19, verse 1, Luke writes, he says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, was passing through Jericho. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now stop right there. Most of you maybe who have grown up in church know a little bit about this story that there was Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Okay. Here's the problem with that song. How fun it is. We don't know he was we. As in small. Some of you unfamiliar with that expression. Maybe really puzzled by that part of the story. I have to tell you, when I was a kid and first heard that, I didn't know that we meant little. Some of you are connecting dots right now. Some of them had a problem with incontinence, bladder control issues that were taking place. He was a wee little man. We don't know that. We don't, we're going to read through the story a little bit, but we don't know that he was just small in stature. Maybe some people have, that's conjecture that he had, you know, wee little man complex, and that's what brought him to this place of life. But we don't know, but we do know this. He lived in Jericho. Jesus was going through Jericho. And there was a man there, his name was Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, Luke is writing this story to a people that probably would have completely understood just by giving this title of, or the fact that this man was a tax collector, the fact that he was wealthy was kind of a redundant statement for those who understood it, because all tax collectors back then were wealthy. Let me give you a little bit of cultural context so you can understand this. Many of you have heard this before, but tax collectors in first century Judea at the time of Jesus, they were often, they were Jewish people by birth. They were Israelites in that way. They were Hebrew, uh, but they worked in conjunction in with the Roman government. Now, Rome taxed people like a ridiculous amount. The taxes that Rome had on the citizens of Judea at the time were oppressive. They were incredibly oppressive. If you look back and see how they taxed people, it was really, really difficult. If you, you know, when I was in Israel last year, we learned about how they taxed even fishermen and even carpenters. Now, most of the disciples, we know a lot of them were fishermen. Jesus was a, came from a carpenter family. I set you up on that one. We also know that one of them was a former tax collector, Matthew. But you have to understand, not only did Rome tax heavily, and the Jewish people hated them. Now, I don't have to say too much about the state of Connecticut right now to stir up some feelings. That was an, that, for those who are listening online, that was a, not an anti-political statement, but just the reality of where we live. Nobody likes taxes. All of us feel like we're overtaxed in that way. But this, this was the context of the people. But the tax collectors were citizens by birthright of the Jewish people, but they worked with the oppressive government. But the, The Romans not only used these guys to collect the oppressive taxes that were being saved, but they basically, as outsourcing this to this group of people, said, hey, this is what you need to collect from the people. And it was oppressive. Anything above what you collect for us, you get to keep. And you get the full weight of the Roman system of punishment 
to back you up in what you collect beyond what we're asking for. Does that make sense? So I could go to, you know, if I was a tax collector, I could go to you and say, oh, you're a fisherman. This is how, what you need to pay to Caesar. You need to pay to Rome. You need to pay in this way. They knew that, but they would actually bump it up. 5, 10, 15, 25, 30, 40, 50%. And if you refuse to pay on principle, tax collectors could say, hey, Roman guards, take them. Put them in jail until they can pay their debt in that way. And they would collect all the money. And the more money that they could collect, the more oppressive they were. These were kind of like the loan sharks of the day. They were the thugs. They were in that way. And they had set it up and they would pocket all this money. And that's what we know about this system. These people were hated, not only because they were oppressive themselves, but they were partnering with another oppressive regime. And they were seen as betrayers and traitors. They were despised. And the only thing they often had was their wealth. And with wealth also comes a form of friendship, doesn't it? The problem is, is that they were often not fully accepted by the Romans and they were totally rejected by their own peers and their own people in that way. So they, but they were left alone with this money and this wealth that we see take place here. And so we know that not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector in the city of Jericho, we know that he's the chief tax collector. So all of his tax collectors who get some money, he gets a kickback from what they collect too. You see this? It's like a mob boss. He gets a piece of everything. And so that's what we know. And and Luke is just letting people know. And the writers and the readers of this time during Luke's day would have been like, oh, yeah, okay. We understand. We understand this. Now look at verse 3. Here's where we see a shift. He, being Zacchaeus, wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short. Oh, did you catch that one? He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead. What did he run ahead of? He ran ahead of the crowd because the crowds would follow Jesus. Jesus would come into a town and he would have people that would hear the stories of Jesus moving in in unbelievable teaching and in authority and healing the people and delivering people, setting them free. And the reputation of Jesus would go ahead of him and these crowds would gather and they'd press in. And so Zacchaeus is trying to press into the crowd to see Jesus, to check him out. And then he ends up running ahead of the crowd to check him out. And then he was there and he said, so he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree, a fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now you have to understand something about fig trees. Have anyone seen a fig tree? I never really understood fig trees until I moved to Australia. We had fig trees in one of the houses that we live in. Fig trees are awesome. You know why? They produce figs. I love figs. Figs are good. Fig Newtons. Beautiful. But the cool thing about fig trees also is they were like really thick with foliage and big leaves, and they're really impressive. And the cool thing about fig trees is, is like, as kids, you, you could like hide inside the fig tree. And the figs would like cover you, like the, not just the figs, but the fig leaves could cover these fig leaves. You ever read the story of the Garden of Eden and sin? Why'd they use fig leaves? They're big. <laughs> Covering up your bits. You got big leaves, right? They work well. And so that's what's happening here. So Zacchaeus is climbing up into this tree. There could be something inside of him that goes, I'm going to climb into this tree. I'm running ahead. I'm going to climb up to check out Jesus. But he probably, because of the crowds and the distraction and the noise and everything, he may not be able to see up to me. I'm going to check him out from a distance. I'm going to see what this guy is like from a safe observation point. The problem is it's about to get awkward. Verse 5, let's keep going. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you ever tried to hide? You ever tried to be discreet and subtle and someone busts you? Someone calls your name? 
That's what's happening here. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Love this. Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. Can you imagine Zacchaeus up in the tree looking at this Jewish rabbi who's gained reputation that there's rumors about him being the Messiah, the Christ that's come to save. He's seen amazing miracles. He's walking in spiritual authority and in favor. He's hiding up in a tree trying to check out Jesus from a distance, from a safe place. And all of a sudden Jesus stops, looks up and calls him out by name. Dum, dum. Dum 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 dum. There's probably you've ever been in those places, and there's like ten thousand thoughts that go through your mind instantly. Yeah, he's thinking, "Oh, this is great. Oh, this is really bad." He's checking me out. He called me by name. He knows who I am. He must know who I am. He says, "Come down." Dum 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 dum. Immediately. Oh, anyone called to the principal's office? Oh, man, anyone got called to the pastor's office? Zacchaeus climbs down. Now, if I'm Zacchaeus, you know, some people tell this story, and they're like, he jumped down because he was so happy. Maybe, I don't know. I know the Zacchaeus in me goes, let me just take some time, gather my thoughts, gather my arguments, gather my perspective. Let's, how do I hide a little bit more? Comes down and then he says, I must stay at your house today. So he came down and at once welcomed him gladly. Again, in a Jewish culture, sharing a meal with someone was profound because it was embracing them not only as equals, but into relationship. You broke bread with people that you were connected with and wanted to connect with and you don't mind being associated with. And not only is he saying, I want to share a meal, he's going, I want to stay at your house today. And we know this about Jesus. When he sends his disciples ahead to each village to prepare the way for him, he says, go find a house of peace with a man of peace in it and say, peace on this house to you and stay there. If they want you there, stay there while you're in this village. So for Jesus to say this, he's saying to Zacchaeus, not only do I want to connect with you, not only do I want to break bread with you, I want to stay in your house. Not only am I releasing the shalom in verbiage, I'm bringing the peace of God into your home. Not only that, I'm the prince of peace. I am peace incarnate, and I want to stay at your house, Zacchaeus. No wonder he welcomed them gladly. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this bit, but there's nothing more that presses a religious spirit's button than to see someone else receive grace and acceptance that they don't think deserve it as much. They began to mutter. Doesn't Jesus know who this is? Doesn't Jesus know that that's Zacchaeus? He's a chief tax collector. He's a betrayer. He's a traitor. He's a sinner. Do you know what he does? Do you know what he did to me to get money from me? If Jesus knew who this was, he wouldn't be going to his house at all. When they call, when he called out Zacchaeus' name, the religious spirit probably in the place is like, oh, it's about to go down. He's going to call this guy out. He's going to judge him. He's going to accuse him in that way. It's the same kind of spirit that Wes was talking about last week with the woman who comes in and worships at Jesus' feet. This woman who's lived a life of sin and Simon responds with a religious spirit. If Jesus knew who this lady was, he wouldn't be receiving her. He'd be rejecting her because that's what's in my heart to reject people that don't live up to the standard that I think should be there. And if you want to know what that standard is, well, I won't say it out loud, but take a look at me. Because it's so easy in our hearts to set up villains and victims, isn't it? It is for me. And whenever I bring a narrative into that of villains and victims, who's usually the victim in the story? 
Who's usually the villain? Someone else. Anyone else. Anything else. So you see this exchange take place. These people are muttering, all right, let's, for sake of time, let's keep going. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, uh, by the way, you can underline if, (laughs) right? If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. See this? You see this encounter that Zacchaeus has with Jesus? Something has woken in his life. Something hasn't changed in this encounter where he's going from an oppressor, from a cheat, from someone who's done this stuff, and he goes, wait a minute. Lord, right here, right now, I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to say a week from now, I'll get my affairs in order, get all my accounts, make sure everything's cool. I can survive to make this thing, this radical change happen. I can still pay my mortgage, take care of everything else feed my phone plan, all that stuff. He's going right here now. I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. That's generosity. And on top of that, if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay back four times the amount. Four times the amount. Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus is not saying, because you've done this, you've earned salvation. What he's saying, your response shows that something radical has changed in your heart, that there's been a repentance, this metanoia mind shift that's taken place in your heart, that everything you've built your life around has now shifted, and you've moved from greed to generosity. The generosity isn't one earned salvation. It was a manifestation of salvation that had already pierced his heart, had changed his heart, had dealt with him. Today, salvation has come to this man too. He too, this man is a son of Abraham. That wasn't just an acceptance of Jesus saying, "Ah, you're saved. Salvation's come to your house. This is also a public statement that you, Zacchaeus, although you've been rejected by your own by your own people and feel that and believe that you've been cut off from the blessings that has come from the curse of betrayal i'm telling you now i'm calling you a true son of abraham you not only receive the blessings that your kinfolk are receiving as part of the people of israel you're receiving the fullness of the blessings that abraham looked to because you have met the one who made the promise to abraham to begin with That's big. We could spend a lot of time on that one. So, how many of you would like to become more generous? Oh, you got to put pressure on that one. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Well, like Zacchaeus, it starts with a heart change. We want to move from greed to generosity. And can I just tell you, we've been using this in this terms as a kind of a binary thing to be either greedy or generosity. But can I tell you, it's, it's a scale, isn't it? There's progress and process into this. You know, there's probably not many of us are in here who are, I'm totally generous or I'm totally greedy. We're in process. And the, the reality is, is that we want to become this beautiful exchange of moving from the places where we have greed into greater generosity because we know it reflects the heart of God, the generous one. So what's this process? And I remember when Erwin first exchanged this with me, uh, and there's going to be, I'm going to throw a lot out at you real quick, but I trust you guys to break it down a little bit. So how do you move from greed to generosity? Well, let's first, let's look at generosity because I don't want to just look at greed. Most of us know it really well, but generosity, what is generosity? And so uh, I love the definition of generosity that, that I'm going to give you. Now, first of all, this word generous or generosity in the, 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 Etymology of the, of the English word generosity is really means this. The roots of this is, is um, being of royal birth for the purpose of giving away. Did you get that? The real heart of this English word, the root of it, is this sense of being of royal birth for the purpose of giving away. So we know that in the original serfdom culture and 
the feudal system became oppressive to people. But in its heart was people who were of nobility and of royal birth that had privilege, position, and wealth would use that position and privilege and wealth and property to support whole groups of people in villages, to give them opportunities as well as protection, that those who were of noble birth would give away what they could to people so that their life could improve as well. To be generous, to say, I have been given much, I will give away much to provide opportunities and to set up a system of mutual blessing and protection. Does that make sense? Did that get abused? Of course. Why? Because <laughs> just because you're of noble birth and you've got wealth doesn't mean that you don't struggle with greed too. And if you can get more, why not? So we understand that greed is not about, the, the heart of greed is not about how much you currently have. Neither is generosity. Most of us are waiting to have an abundance so that we can be more generous. Generosity is a position of heart. And so we have to understand what is generosity. Generosity in itself is this, and I'd write down this word if you can. Generosity is sacrificing for others. Sacrificing for others. It's not just giving or contributing. It's actual sacrificing. The heart of generosity says, I will sacrifice something of myself to give to others. When we see this level of generosity in others, doesn't it do something in our hearts? Just me? When we encounter true generosity, something changes in our hearts. Can I tell you who some of the most generous people on the earth are? Moms. Right? Dads, you're great too. We're good. But the true heart of a mom is often willing to sacrifice for the sake of their kids, the sake of others. Generosity comes from that place of going, sacrifice for the sake of others. What brings us to a place where we're willing to sacrifice? Not just give. Giving's good. We'll talk about that in a second but to sacrifice for the needs of others. Can I tell you, I believe that this word generosity really is, it's from a place of nobility of heart to say, I have been given much and I will give away. I'll give it away. I'll sacrifice for the needs of others. Let's keep going. So what leads to that kind of generosity? We're going to kind of move backwards through this. What leads to this generous kind of life, the willing to sacrifice for others? It starts with, Wholeness. It starts with wholeness. Now, this whole series we're talking about moving into a place of wholeness. Well, let me define wholeness a little bit for you in this way. Uh, that it's really so generosity is sacrificing for the needs of others. Wholeness comes, or the expansion of wholeness is this: it's really giving more than you take. It's giving more than you take. Wholeness. The opposite of wholeness would be brokenness. Right. Brokenness in its nature is trying to make themselves whole. And often the way we feel that we get more whole, and if you want to look at that, that word is a play on words. When we're broken, we feel that there's a hole in us, right? That we're trying to feed. There's something wrong inside of us. There's something that should be there that's not there. There's something that, that is broken that needs healing. There's either a wound or something, a need that didn't get met. There's a hole inside me and it, it leads to this brokenness. And when, if I could just get that hole filled a little bit more, I'll feel better and then I won't be as broken. I'll be more whole. And all of us have a plan to fill the hole to feel whole. The problem is this, though. The problem with brokenness is this. You can't feed brokenness. Because brokenness just grows. Have you ever seen this? Remember Erwin sharing the story with me, and I think it's illustrative, and I'm going to use it because no one in this room 
knows who he's talking about or who I'm talking about, but he was talking about a family that was in his congregation that had been going through some hard times and they had a pattern of going through some hard times as well. And they came to them and they said to the church, hey, we're having a hard time meeting our, our rent this month. Could you help us out? So they, it was a you know, poor church in the inner city of Dallas, and, but they scraped some money together and they paid for this, this family's rent. And they said, thanks, appreciate that. Next month. They showed up again and said, well, you know, we've got this going on and this hasn't changed and having this, you know, could you help us out again? And so they, they, they did what they could and they pulled together some money and they gave it to them. And they were like, oh, thank you, paid, paid for the rent. And next month, and the month came. Hey, uh, some other things took place and, you know, can, can you help us out another month? So five months pass. And finally... Erwin came to the family and said, listen, uh, I'm really sorry that you're in need again, but we have tapped every dollar. There's no more. We've given everything we can. Uh, if, if We've sacrificed. We've been generous in this way. And the family, instead of saying, thank you so much for the past five months that you've met our needs, that you've gone above and beyond, that you've sacrificed to help us out, instead of saying thank you, they said, what kind of Christians are you? Where, where are you when we need? And they literally cursed them and disconnected from them and moved on to the next place. Now, that's an extreme example. But all of us have known what that brokenness looks like. And we call those people that try to feed their brokenness on the wholeness and generosity of others. We call them emotional leeches. They attach on. They see someone who's healthy and more whole than they are, and they latch on, and, and then they, they just start. And, and I know Christians would never, ever do this. But they just start sucking the life out of it, and they meet generosity, and they receive, which is good. That's a good thing, right, to begin with. But the problem is if that brokenness isn't truly healed into wholeness, it just becomes bigger. And you know, a leech just grows to the size and capacity of the host that it's latched onto. And when it's sucked that host dry, where there's nothing left to give, they go find another one. And they latch onto that person. And in Christian circles, if this ever happened, I'm sure it wouldn't. Usually what takes place is this. They, they, you know, they come and, you know, to Bob and Cindy and they say, Hey, we, we feel this. And they don't come in purposely. They don't come in consciously going, I'm a really broken person. I'm going to suck you dry for all that you're worth and, and then leave, you know, but that happens. And, and then all of a sudden the Bob and Cindy are like, let's put down some borders, some boundaries, some, we can't do this anymore. We've, we've got our own things that we've got to deal with. We've got, and, and so, uh, you know, they put down some boundaries. Can I tell you, brokenness hates boundaries. And broken, boundaryless people will never thank you for putting them down, putting the boundaries in place. Does that make sense? And so what happens is they go, Bob and Cindy say, we can no longer meet those needs because they're greater than our capacity to meet those needs. And we've been generous and we've been sacrificed and we've been giving in that way. And so they, they kind of detached. And again, they're the person, the emotional leech is like, well, thank you so much for all that you've given me. I'm so appreciative of it. I've been totally changed. What they do is they go find Audrey and Audrey says, Hey, how are you doing? And you go, well, do you want me to tell you the truth? And well, I'm not doing so great. Oh, Audrey's generous and cares. And how can I, what, what, what's going on? How can I help you? Can I pray for you? Well, yeah, you know, Bob and Cindy, they really hurt me. You know, I thought they were my friends. I thought they were helping me out. I thought this, but they've cut me off. And Audrey's like, oh, no. Wow, I'm really sorry. How can I help you? AA's definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That includes brokenness. If our plan to feed our brokenness 
is to live off of the generosity of other people that have a finite capacity, not only to help you, but to heal you. We will stay in a place of brokenness. And that greed will continue. That greed will continue. People who are whole, on the whole, give more than they take. Broken people, if they stay in their brokenness and not move to a place of transformation through Christ Jesus, our Lord, have a desire to feed brokenness in an unhealthy way, expecting results to be different in that way. What leads to wholeness? What leads to take place? I'll go through this quickly. It starts with a perspective and mind shift change. And I'm going to give this to you. This is, and you see it very quickly with Zacchaeus. It's this. You become grateful. Now I want to give you a definition of moving us, how we get to gratefulness. And it's this. Gratefulness comes with an experience and understanding of grace. Grace is realizing that what I'm not actually getting what I deserve. Ungratefulness that leads to brokenness, that leads and feeds greed is a false belief. Grace, when it touches our hearts, gives us a perspective of realizing that I deserve nothing. Let me say that again. Grace, the truth of grace, pierces our hearts. We come to the realization that I deserve nothing. Therefore, anything I get in the goodness of God causes me to be grateful. And if I move to a place from greed to gratefulness, I'm thankful for whatever I receive. And when I'm grateful for everything I received, I see others who may need and I pass it on because I know that they deserve nothing too. And if God, who can look at me with compassion, who can see me like Zacchaeus in the tree, who's trying to hide, who's got a plan of greed, who's taking it, he can look at me and say, I want to be with you. And I give you the inheritance of Abraham that you don't deserve. But my grace is bigger than your brokenness. And when it's truly touched our our hearts, we don't look at God and go, thank you for giving me what I deserve. Don't ever pray that prayer. What do you deserve? Nothing. I remember doing this with a middle school, a bunch of middle school students and being like, what do you deserve? And most of them were like, nothing. And one kid goes, we deserve death, judgment, and hell. One of those times as a youth pastor, I'm caught in a quandary right now. Do I give him a gold star for his theology or, you know. <laughs> this story, you've got a bunch of people grumbling because they're looking at a sinner in Zacchaeus. They know his sin is obvious. They know what he's like. And they're looking at it and going, how dare he get grace from the rabbi, from the one they call a Messiah, from the one who's healing the sick, healing the blind, who's teaching incredible things, who has come to change this nation. He may be the Christ, the Messiah, and he's calling out that guy. Doesn't he know that that guy deserves death, punishment, judgment, and hell? We deserve to have Jesus in our house. 
It's Wes's story last week. The woman caught in sin. And Jesus, in Simon, in his own self-righteousness, is going, I deserve that level of honor and respect. I should be, if anyone's going to give this guy honor, it should be me. And maybe he should be the one who's giving me honor. I'm the one who at least hosting him, not this woman. Not this woman who's lived in sin and judgment. Jesus knows his heart. And he looks at this woman and he says to Simon, those who have been forgiven much, love much. The difference between this woman and Simon is not their greatness of their sin. It was their ability to receive the greatness of his grace. Grateful people understand grace. This isn't some self-loathing thing I'm talking about. I deserve nothing. I'm just a worm. Jesus tells another parable of the time because people were struggling with the greediness of self-righteousness. And he said, two men go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a religious leader of the day, and one a tax collector. And the tax collector stands at a distance and he beats his chest, not even looking up to heaven and go, have mercy on me, a sinner. While the Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like the rest of you. Another character to reveal the places of our heart that struggle with greed. And here's the worst thing. When we are greedy with the grace of Jesus Christ in our own heart, it feeds a self-righteousness within us that says, I deserve more than the rest. And real greed is saying this, I've worked harder than the rest of you. I've paid more of a, a price. I've been more holy. I've been more pious. I've been more righteous. I've been. And as soon as we go to that place, we have a ledger that we put up in front of God and saying, I deserve more grace than the next guy. And that extreme brokenness will either lead to self-dependence or it will lead to being emotional leech in some capacity where we will end up taking more than we give. Self-righteousness is greed because you are keeping the righteousness of Christ and the grace of Christ for yourself rather than releasing it. The emotional leech does the same thing in a different capacity. It just takes your generosity and says, really, I deserve it. I deserve to have this need met in my life. And I'll find it meant in someone. And the cure is the same, whether we're self-righteousness in our own religiosity or we're at a place of brokenness that we, we gather from the other people, their generosity. The cure is this, is when we look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you took what I deserve, so, but I get what you deserve. Thank you so much. And we sing songs like, faithful you are. And those who are truly grateful go back and go, God, you've been so faithful to me. I don't even deserve to be here. I don't deserve to call you Father. I don't deserve to have the salvation. I don't deserve this grace, this love, this mercy and acceptance. And the fact that you don't just give grace says in Scripture that you lavish grace on us. Not to feed my brokenness, but to heal it, to transform it, to change it, and so I can give it wherever I go. Being grateful is the recognition of how great He is and how in need of grace I am. And it leads me to giving grace where it needs to be in a healthy way with right boundaries to help people transform and change. Why don't you stand with me? Can I just tell you right now I know 
when I'm in a place of ungratefulness and brokenness, when I hear this message and go, man, there's about 10 other people in this room that really need to hear this message right now. I start from a place of saying, Jesus, thank you. If you do nothing more for me for the rest of my life, and I know out of your goodness you will because you can't help yourself out of love, but even if nothing else was done for me, you gave it all for me. God, forgive me. I'm just going to pray for myself, and if you want to join me in your heart, that's fine. God, forgive me. For the places of pride and arrogance in my life. Self-righteousness. Where I say I deserve more, even just a little bit more than anyone else. God, I've received your grace because I need it, because you want to give it. Let it permeate my heart, transform my thinking, and change my attitude and perspective to the place where I not only become whole, where I come like you, that lives from a place of sacrificial love. I'm not there yet, God. And there's no one in this room who can change me. There's no program in this room that will transform my heart, however useful they are. However, by means of grace, they can be. Ultimately, Jesus, I need you to change my nature, to change my heart, to change my thinking. Holy Spirit, make me more like you. Thank you that you won't give up. God, I ask that Wellspring would be a place of healing and wholeness and gratitude and gratefulness. And as your work changes our hearts, we'll start to live more generously, unreservedly. In wisdom and revelation, for your sake, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 There's part of me that wants to say, turn to your neighbor and tell them what they deserve. Uh, Here's what I want you to do. On your way out, uh, if anyone needs prayer, we'd love to have you pray. Uh, we'd love to pray for you and bless you in that way. But on your way out, turn to someone and says, God loves you unconditionally. <laughs>